Welcome to TD Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hi, uh, my name is Charles Reed, TD Cowan's Healthcare Technology Analyst, and welcome to TD Cowan's Future Health Podcast. Today's podcast is part of our monthly series that continues TD Cowan's efforts to bring together thought leaders, innovators, and investors to discuss how the convergence of healthcare technology, consumerism, and policy is changing the way we look at health, healthcare, and the healthcare system. And over the last decade, data and analytics have become increasingly ingrained in the healthcare system. And given the evolving landscape, we want to provide a deeper look into different types of healthcare data, as well as the users and use cases. Uh, This podcast is intended to be the first in a series on healthcare data, and today we'll provide a general overview of how healthcare data is currently being used, with subsequent podcasts exploring subsets in more depth. Uh, And to help discuss the topic, I'm joined by Paul Rusher. He has a master's in applied mathematics and applied economics spending time in academia researching health economic outcomes. Started his professional career at IMS Health, now part of IQVIA, first as a product manager, then eventually helping develop what is now IQVIA's anonymized patient data solution. Uh, He subsequently led a similar development program for DRG, which is now part of Clarivate. Uh, Paul currently is vice president of clinical data products at Forian, a healthcare data intelligence company. Uh, Paul, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Thank you, Charles, for having me. It's really good to be here. Great. Uh, you know, maybe before we begin, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing at Forian uh, and maybe some of your professional career as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gave a pretty good snapshot to it. Um, you know, started off doing economic stuff and projections, you know, statistical methodology. Um, I found healthcare data, healthcare claims data to be uh, pretty fascinating, interesting. Started doing some, you know, academia level type consulting work in health economics. And then kind of from there forayed into the full on data products and data product offerings and data strategy. It's an ever evolving platform, really. There's constantly new data streams coming through, new data sources, new offerings, new competitors. Uh, it it's a fascinating marketplace, really. The The entire ecosystem is really cool. And great. And at Forian, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about Forian. Sure. Yeah. So um, over the last decade, I've always been involved with building out uh, claims data products. Here, I'm building out claims data products with a little more of my fingerprint on it for hybrid data between open and closed source data. Uh, and then linking in social determinants of health consumer data to the offerings as well as uh, EMR, uh, as needed, depending on different use cases or whatnot. That's what we've been doing at Forian, trying to build out a best-in-class patient longitudinal capabilities uh, with claims data being the the basis of it, but then trying to layer in ancillary data products to give a best-in-class. Great. You know, so let's jump in here a little bit. You know, a lot of folks are uh, who might be listening are familiar. It's familiar with the idea of claims data and prescription data, some of the big big buckets of data that are out there in the market. Maybe starting there. You know, what what are the main sources where this data is coming from, and and then you know maybe touch on you know what is valuable about claims data. I mean, it all comes back to think revenue cycle management software uh, that's being offered in health networks. Providers utilize the software to submit medical claims or pharmacy benefit type software where it's submitting a pharmacy claims, um, which typically come through in a different format, submitting these through 
software that gets to payers, Medicare, whoever is going to reimburse the claims. So that's typically for claims data that's kind of breaks into three different buckets. There's uh, pharmacy claims, which is retail, non-retail, specialty. It's kind of its own thing. There are medical claims that are either open sourced, so it's typically like a software, multi-payer, just a, more of an open software that's a clearinghouse, you know, processing claims. And then there's closed source claims data, which is uh, either a single or multi-payer system, but typically has some sort of an eligibility criteria um, or enrollment file that comes along with the closed claims data. And that's that's claims data in nutshells, these three different components. What, why do people, you know, what, what are people typically using uh, claims data for? Sure. Like, you know, what, what are they trying to tease out of this information? Because it, right, it's, it's generally meant right. for billing purposes, uh, but obviously it's, there's a lot of analytics put on it. Yeah. And it, all the, I mean, all the analytical use cases come back to three pieces, basically some sort of a provider intel or targeting. So understanding what physicians or providers are doing treatment utilizations, medical encounters, prescriptions that are getting processed, patients. So understanding medical encounters around patients or understanding their their health journeys as they kind of move along in their lives and, and medical procedures they have, prescriptions they take, drug utilization, uh, compliance around that, and then ultimately uh, reimbursement, right? Um, so if, if a prescription is filled, how much is it reimbursed by which payers? What is the patient out of pocket? What is the patient burden from an economic perspective? Um, just, just understanding that, but it's three pieces. It's typically provider, some sort of an intel around providers, some sort of an intel around patients, or ultimately how are these things being reimbursed? And, you know, when we, when we think about that, you know, who, who are the who are the main users of this data at this point? Pharmaceutical life science companies could be pre or post uh, launch of a therapy or indication. Medical device companies, same sort of commercial use cases. Provider networks, just to understand referral patterns, leakage, steerage, in-network, out-of-network analysis. Uh, the payers uh, are also interested to some extent on overall healthcare utilization and and cost containment, right? Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I guess what's interesting though is when we, you know, when we think about this data set, you know, it, it seems like there's, a, you mentioned earlier, there's a bunch of clearinghouses that you can get this data from, or you can get it directly from, you know, big networks, uh, maybe from health plans directly, you know, sure. is it, is it easy to get access to this data? Um, is it, you know, are, are there barriers entry to trying to set up Sure. A uh, business to to access and analyze this data. Uh, the answer is yes and no. So, I, getting a hold of uh, some sort of claims data from somebody in the somebody out there in the marketplace that's trying to uh, license the data or insights from the data, pretty relatively straightforward. Um, yeah, it's readily available. Um, no, on the other side of that is the fact that uh, they have good good answers or good data or uh, some amalgamation of a lot of data sources together into one single source of truth for analysis, yeah, the barrier to entry gets higher and it's more expensive. Um, and so you typically have to lean on 
But again, somebody like Fourier that's like a data aggregator to, to help you uh, answer questions because we've pulled data from a many different sources to give you these insights that you're looking for. Is the quality uh, is quality an issue when looking at these different data sets? Because I, I would think sure. that claims data is pretty standard so that even if you pulled it from different places, it, it's still a medical claim. Uh, maybe touch on that. You know, what, how, how does that look for me across the industry? It's it's normalization is a is a problem, right? So uh, normalization of data, standardization of fields across different sources. Um, some providers, some data aggregators and providers do it better than others. Um, but you know, this is where looking ahead into the future, this is where uh, generative AI and such is is seems to be very promising. Um, it, I, you know, I I'm of the opinion that it's going to be transformative to our industry to help with this uh, normalization problem, um, cleanliness of data problem, right? Yeah, I, I think when we when we talk about uh, sort of normalization of data, I think a lot of people tend to think of claims data as, as, as fairly clean. It sounds like you're saying that that's not always the case. Um, what, what, what are the major parts that that are challenges in normalizing something like claims data, which you would assume is is pretty standard. Well, it's interesting. It could be, um, there's a couple different f- facets. Uh, typically, we we look at everything from back to provider, patient, payer, provider information. So the hospitals, the physicians, the medical offices, uh, you're beholden to how that information is filled into the software, right? So it could be uh, relatively straightforward and how it was captured. Um, the, the billing address could be the physical address that somebody rendered a, a procedure or some medical encounter occurred at said address, um, or could be some medical billing office that's part of the health network. And that address is not the physical location of whatever the procedure was. So there's a lot of normalization around the place of service for facilities or physicians. That's interesting. Um, next patient. Uh, so, you know, we are HIPAA compliance is an issue, right? So de-identified data uh, had to be de-identified at some point. Um, there's different approaches and technology used for de-identification, but that doesn't exactly relate to one-to-one saying that, you know, I, I de-identified this, this patient that has one patient idea, ID. Um, there's, there's a lot of work that we do around patient mastering that we call it. And that has us uh, coordinating between different data sources and looking at things like you know, data births, uh, age, gender, different other identifiable information that is HIPAA compliant that passes through on claims or EMR data. And we use that to try to master the patients. And then ultimately, the, the last one being payers. So if you have a reimbursement interest, uh, understanding payer and plan name and payer type, that, that can be kind of a messy thing in and of itself. Um, and again, back to how the data is sourced, that could be some kind of a conundrum you have to work through. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, if we, you know, if we think that that's complex, you know, and, and then we think about moving on to EHR data, which now, you know, given the high tech act and the mass adoption of EHRs over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, 
it, it, that's an area where I think most people look at and say, well, that that's even more complex given, you know, sort of the, a, a lot of the the value added information is in you know free form physician notes, uh, voice uh, voice attachments, you know, imaging files, image file. Um, maybe talk a little bit about EHR data, you know, sort of the the prevalence of its use today, you know, and and how how important do you think EHR data is relative to to claims data? It's just as important, but the use cases are a little different, right? So this is more patient centric type insights. Um, but ultimately, you know, back to that normalization problem, we run into some issues with EMR data where um, different software has different you know, inputs, different field content. Um, so you could have some of the same fields across different EMR softwares, different answers, different, different nomenclature within, you know, um, writing out whatever, you know, uh, some clinical naming convention, right? And I, I think you could run into issues where you're trying to go through clinical information. You either have to have a a clinical mindset, so more like a clinical researcher and then a data scientist. Um, and that's a that's a gap that you start to run into more with EMR data versus claims data. With claims data, there's a lot of, I have somebody that's a really good data analyst and they know how to code and script and they can kind of Google search their way through clinical uh, knowledge gaps that they have, but they could still probably do a lot of analysis with claims data. When we start looking at EMR data, um, there's different coding and naming conventions and uh, there could be a lot of permutations around that. So you start to have to need somebody with a little more of a clinical eye to understand uh, the information. And then ultimately when you talk about you know, freeform patient notes or images or audio inputs, um, we start to get into things that are very sticky in the HIPAA compliance world, right? Um, we look at, uh, EMR images that are stored for a you know some patient visit or was whatever radiology imagery or X-ray or something that happened. Each one of those images typically has to be scrubbed uh, because it had you know patient name or date of birth or social security number. Or there there was some kind of an identifiable component put into the image, right? Um, so just just working through all that. Same with the patient notes. It's different, but more of the same could have, uh, patients' names or, or other relevant notes that, that a medical professional decided to put in, uh, the fields, right? Yeah, no, certainly. It, you, you talked to earlier, you, you just mentioned, right, with EHR data, it's really more patient-centric. But, you know, my, my understanding is even with claims data, right, more and more payers are asking for clinical documentation to approve reimbursement. Does that kind of lessen the value of EHR data if the claims data is now being attached with more clinical note notation? No, because I still think there for specific rare disease and specific types of medical visits, EMR data is always going to be. It's just going to have a little bit more information than what would ever be pertinent to claims data. So it's just again, it's different data for different use cases, um, but. You know, marrying claims data with EMR data obviously leads to this best in class. Um, have your cake, eat it too. Whatever analogy you want to use, it it becomes uh, a lot better when you have the combination of both. Um, and then again, if you can add 
sewer data to it, well, now we're into a whole new facet of, of patient-centric research. Yeah, maybe before I go into that, um, you know, maybe touch on some of the, the most common use cases for EMR, you know, EHR data today. Mostly in patient journey and understand uh, clinical sequencing, um, uh, anything where a lab result or some kind of a test result is is pertinent to be able to uh, further come up with a patient distribution sub diagnosis code level. That, that that's where that typically becomes more useful. Claims data is just going to say you know this person has this condition and this is the procedure. This is the drug that was prescribed. Whereas obviously um, EMR data is going to have more information around uh, genomics, lab results, what have you. Are, is EMR, is HR data being used yet in terms of, uh, you know, with biopharma companies, uh, you know, we hear of this, you know, potentially creating synthetic control arms for clinical trials or uh, identifying potential pa- patients for trials. It, it, it sounds like it's a it sounds fairly intuitive that that could be a, a good use of the CMR data. Is is that being actually applied today yet? In pockets, I don't think it's as, it's one of those things that it it's not as widespread as you would think. But again, at synthetic control arms, clinical trial optimization work um, uses EMR data, claims length EMR data. That's that's you know. It's for sure a definite use case for that, um, but I don't think it's as widespread as as you would think it is. And and maybe what what, what might be the reason that's the case? Uh, you know, it, it sounds like it's such a powerful uh, tool. You know, particularly you know when you think about just the cost of you know getting you know developing a drug. If you could you know cut one arm of a trial out uh, and do it, you know, through existing real world evidence. What, what you know? What what has been the general barriers for that? Is that a regulatory issue like FDA, or is that you know the cost or or technological barrier? I I think it's a bit of a, a technology and data barrier. Just to out it again, going back to my without reiterating into the cleanliness and normalization of fields. That's always going to be a uh, this thorn in your side when you're trying to do stuff like that. And then ultimately regulation as well. You know, without without opining too much on that, I think there's a where people would like synthetic control arms and clinical trial with based on real world evidence where where the talk track is and where that is from a reality in regulation, I think is two different points. And so, you know, when when you're maybe let's talk about this linked kind of claims with EHR, like what if it's already challenging to normalize EHR data and normalize and even claims data itself has some challenges there, I'd imagine linking the two is, you know, maybe exponential in terms of, uh, you know, really creating a clean, clean data set to, to do analytics. Well, you would think that, right? Um, having said that, it's a de-identified patient ID and just tracking patients longitudinally from EMR data to claims data, right? Um they can actually be very supplemental, right? As far as um, the claims data might have better capture of certain fields and information and the EMR data has less capture um, or or it has a really like a mile deep 
snapshot of of these four medical encounters, having said that, it's missing the other 15 claims for that said patient, right? So there's a bit of when you kind of link the two together and use them in combination, they kind of can supplement each other for use cases uh, when you're doing the analysis. And then, then let me, you know, so I guess, you know, before we move on, it's, it seems like, you know, the, you know, the, the demand for this kind of data, you know, it, and, and I ask this because, right, you know, more and more companies, you know, seem to be talking about um, the data sets that they sit on, uh, looking to monetize that data, you know, particularly looking at the life science industry as the end market. You know, what what is, you know, maybe talk a little bit about the market dynamics that you're seeing here as it relates to the demand for, for data right now. It's changed a lot. There are a lot more entrants into the market uh, where they have some sort of an exhaust data asset that they're pulling together from, you know, whatever their their proprietary business is. What I think that one of the bigger problems you see, you know, is that there are a lot of people that have something that's maybe a mile deep and a foot wide for a specific therapeutic area, rare disease, or some snapshot or some patient registry, I think expectations are bad. So it's a long way to way to get around to it. I just think that the demand is the demand is good, but there are a lot of, you know, frequent entrants in the market here that have something kind of small and and I think their expectations on what it could be are just too high. Yeah, they're just too high, really. It, I, I see that a lot. Um, but again, I, you know, it's uh, buyer beware. There's there's more and more things to to draw your attention, and pharma life sciences, you know, uh, great buyers for data. If, you know, if there's if there's an industry sector that really knows how to utilize data to learn more about um, how to be better at their business, it's definitely pharma life science companies, but. Uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of a buyer beware or uh, on the flip side, just bad expectations on on just lofty goals for what their exhaust data product could be. You know, you, you, you talk about buyer beware, but I, I get the sense, though, that, you know, from some of the folks we've talked to, you know, pharma is it, kind of just like a just an open, I don't want to say an open checkbook, right? But it, they, they, they seem to be very open to buying all types of data, you know, with the ideas like, well, if there's some type of insight there, you know, we'll figure it out. But we'd rather have the data than than not have it. Is 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 that a fair kind of representation of kind of the uh, the biopharma market at the moment? Well, I I almost I almost snickered when you said the open checkbook comment, but um, I think it depends on who you're talking about as far as who it is in the industry. Look. We do a lot of work with mid, small, and emerging companies, and and the thing that that really kind of resonates with us, and why we're pretty good, uh, pretty good at servicing our customers, is that I more and more I speak to people that are getting inundated by a lot of different offerings, but being a mid, small, and emerging company, they they have to do a lot with a little. Um, so most of the time they're looking for the most bang for the buck and it's not just, you know, who could buy the most data for the least amount of money. It's more like how, how many different use cases can I solve or problems can I solve with, 
with something that I can acquire from somebody or license from somebody. So I, in my opinion, um, yeah, there, you're not wrong. Sure. There's definitely open checkbook scenarios and they're looking for new and novel, right? And they're always going to be acquiring whatever the new novel exhaust data is. But I think the vast majority in the space are more mid-small and emerging and they're trying to be a little scrappier with what, what they can what they license and how many questions they could solve with what they license. I see. So I guess we should think of the market maybe like in two tiers, right? Like sure. the, the Mercs and Pfizer's of the world versus sort of the, you know, the emerging biopharm, you know, biotech space kind of uh, maybe bifurcate them a big farmer versus emerging, I guess, perhaps. I would say there's definitely a top 20, top 25 pharma life science versus mid, small, and emerging. But yeah, it's definitely, there's a, there's a bifurcation there. It's not the same in medical device as well, or does, you know, the top, you know, 10, you know, med device companies, do they behave like the top, you know, uh, biopharma companies? No, they're, they're a little different. Um, a little less on that open checkbook thing. Right. Um, but it's definitely, uh, well, I don't, first off, I don't think it's 20 or 25, right? Like, like in pharma, it's easy to say these top 20 companies all are a lot alike or, or, or more similar and have seen whatever market caps or whatever. And then the medical device, I think it's a, it's a sharper group, right? It's like eight companies, right? Maybe a top 10. And then there are a ton of uh, mid-level or small medical device companies. I don't even like to say emerging medical device because um, I think... <laughs> You, know, you want to talk about a miss in our healthcare system. I think if you're trying to be an emerging medical device manufacturer, I think that's a really tough road to go down. All right. Well, hey, you know, oh, you know, moving on, right? Um, you know, we we talked about claims data. We we've talked about uh, EMR data, and, uh, and clearly, there's seems like this is where most of the value currently is. You know, but at the same time, right? We we're starting to you know starting to see exploration of other new sets of data, you know, you know, wearables, I, I, I think is one category you increasingly hear of, you know, obviously uh, a lot of people walk around with an Apple watch, you know, Fitbit kind of started that years ago. Maybe talk about sort of the utility of some of this wearables data. I mean, I, I think everyone thought measuring steps might be valuable, but, you know, not more and more functionality is going into some of these, you know, watches or you know, the aura ring or, you know, things like that, right? Uh, what, you know, what kind of utility do you find in, in this type of data? In the future, I think it'll be amazing. Hands down. Um, today, I think the collected data is interesting, but I don't know how much insight it provides. I think the wearables market is really most interesting from like a lack of a better term, like a PMR, like primary market research component for um, patients, patient registries, clinical trials, right? Um, and pharma companies are certainly already utilizing that for, you know, I have people in this clinical trial, we're going to issue them kind of a wearables uh, device so that they can start tracking things, monitoring things, or answering questions, uh, that we could push out to them. There are a couple companies that have uh, hit the market here recently that show a lot of promise, especially around a PMR use case with wearables. Having said that, you know, um, 
one of the largest wearables company had entered the marketplace and and was showing a lot of promise um, to to come out with healthcare use cases using their exhaust data to power things and and just to ultimately link this all together and they made a pretty quick exit from the space again barrier to entry is pretty high I think I think there was uh, a lot of a lot of money spent. You know, I think it's very hard to enter this market, but um, I hope that other companies aren't discouraged by that because I think it's I think it's the future. And, and you know, and that's interesting. You said right. You, you think of the future, it'll be great. You know, sure. what would take it? You know, but today maybe not so much. What is the, you know, what what is that next step that needs to be solved for to to go from, you know, not that useful today to being you know a, a really important part uh, of data being collected interoperability user participation um so i you know i've done a little work with some wearables uh folks and um just the the information that they can collect from the wearable is not um it's typically kind of beholden to however somebody is using it or i can issue you uh some kind of like a garment right but if you forget to put it on every single day. I mean, that's obviously a simpleton answer, but you get the gist that, you know, if it's not collecting information, it's not collecting information. And I think that's, that's one of the problems. And then the interoperability of it, right? So if it's, it's wearables is, you know, instant time, you know, from a, from that perspective, it's instant health data. Uh, but how do I link it to your broader healthcare data and how do I glean insight of that linked to whatever EMR data or claims data or whatnot? And that, that part's still kind of a gap. Is, is that a gap in terms of technology or is that more of a gap in just trying to make that a more intuitive connection of how to, how to apply it into the data that we have? Both. Right. So I think there's a, there's a de-identification issue. There's a how I have to store one th- one thing has to be HIPAA compliant. The other, I'm not sure. And I say I'm not sure because I think it's still to be determined uh, with wearables data. Um, and then also just this doing the initiatives, right? The analysis of how is wearables data? What what use case does that answer when it's you know collected with like claims data or EMR? When I link the two together, how do I? What is that collective story? And I think that's still a little unknown. Yeah, interesting. You know, an- another uh, you know aspect that we we hear more and more of is you know social determinants of health. You know, sort sure. of consumer related data. You know, because a lot of that has an impact on on people's health uh, ability to either access healthcare or to you know to get treated, um, et cetera, or to you know for healthcare, right? Uh, you know how 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 has that part of the market been developing? And we we hear a lot of we hear a lot about it from from companies, but you know, curious as to what you're actually seeing in the market in terms of uh, you know using and utilizing it. And you know, first you know maybe first off, you know, where, where do these sorts of data typically come from? Uh, so uh, consumer data is um, more Google type data aggregators, online data aggregators. Um, credit reporting agencies um, or some kind of an entity set up as a exhaust data 
subsidiary to credit reporting agencies. It's it's out there and it's pretty readily available. The level of parity on it, so that that's kind of interesting. And I, I say that because- What do you mean by level of parity? Well, it, you know, it's tough to say, but if there's 10 people out on the market offering consumer data, I, I feel like six or seven of them are, are selling you the exact same file, right? Um, and so there's a bit of parity between the information that you can kind of gather and you get to this, there's there's a pretty quick plateau to how good that information is right now. That doesn't mean that that can't be expanded in the future or won't be better. Um, but at the moment, you kind of get to this, this point of parity where uh, it's good, not great. It's linkability via de-identification is good, not great. And you know, I'm I'm kind of waiting for the next step on that and where that'll get better. And then unfortunately, I, I will say this, people like me or my industry are kind of caught in the twin a rock in a hard place with consumer data because consumer data, when, you know, boiled down to social determinants of health, when linked with claims data and EMR data is super powerful. Talks about, you know, patient diversity. This helps with clinical trial, recruitment and optimization, um, physician capture, just understanding uh, patient distributions better uh, by race or ethnicity or or wealth, socioeconomic status. Um, understanding that it, when linked with physician information of who is treating said patients, that stuff's very valuable to to solving the problems in healthcare, right? And this this is a good data set for getting back to this interoperability problem that healthcare has. This kind of also, once again, helps smooth out these gaps. But I say we're caught between a rock and a hard place because on the other side, there's a, there's a huge privacy struggle, right? There's uh, California Consumer Protection Act passed. Other states have started to kind of catch steam and sign things into law that have uh, protections around consumer privacy. And again, it on the basis of, you know, making sure that some company isn't selling your data, uh, you know, so that you can get robo-dialed for days on end. That's, you know, yeah, I get it. That's the reason why the law was passed, but it does also provide this barrier to people like me, people in this industry that are trying to take consumer data to link it to claims data if every every six months or every year there's there's kind of a, another missing component on the consumer data. It's it's kind of a uphill battle there. So I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, it it's kind of, it, it's an exciting time to be working with consumer data that you link to healthcare data. At the same time, there's like, I don't know, there's there's this dark shadow coming behind it that I don't know if it's going to mess us up or not. Yeah, it seems like I would imagine with the consumer data, are the main buyers of this more on the on the you know the payer side uh, versus maybe the life science side, or or is it kind of spread out evenly? It's both. Everybody is interested in this. Just understanding race, ethnicity, socioeconomic information about patients by disease or you know, prescriptions of interest or whatever, right? Like this, it provides a lot of insight and it's very helpful. Uh, and the CMS is, you know, they've published a lot of information around social determinants of health and how important that is. 
And and so, like I said, I think it's 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 burgeoning. It could be great at the same time. There was there's a travesty around the corner if if we start limiting um, its its collectability or usability of this data. Yeah. You've touched on a number of times uh, the idea of interoperability uh, and the importance of it. You know, this is one area obviously uh, a lot of people have focused on. You know, we we recently had you know, but the the final rule on interoperability. I think that's for EHRs. You had the the launch of TEFCA, sort of that exchange infrastructure, sort of like a you know voluntary. Yeah, on the data structure, right? Um, Is is that? Does that not help solve some of the issues that you're talking about, or you know, is that are these still just first steps to really getting that kind of level of interoperability that you would ideally want? Could be a great first step. There are some great people trying to work with tick data and other things like that that are getting put out in the environment. Having said that, I, you know, I've made the analogy joke that it's it's kind of like pairs were forced to create space junk and they shoot it out into the you know into outer space and it's there if you want to go up there and pull it down you can try to pull it down and make sense of it but there's no regulation to how it was stored and how it's being put up there some commenter might say that that's not true but from my perspective um there seems to be no rhyme or reason to how the data is is pushed out there um and it's you know gazillions of terabytes and, and there, there are great people that are trying to work with the the data right now to figure out different different insights out of it but it's it's kind of like two steps forward one step back like it just how this what's out there is space junk so maybe something <laughs> makes sense of it. it's it's a it's a interesting analogy i i guess is this a you know not to ask for more regulation because I'm not sure that's the answer here, but you know, w- you know, when you think about like the internet, for example, it's it's it seems like you know the industry eventually kind of coalesced around a limited number of standards, you know, HTML, you know, th- things like that, sure. where common languages that everything is kind of built on. W- why is that? Ha- why hasn't that happened faster in healthcare? It's a great question. I think um, I think just a, that's a legacy problem, right? Uh, for so long there was. Not, I don't want to say disincentive, but nobody was really incentivized. Again, you you mentioned uh, the Affordable Care Act and uh, the stim- stimulus package around EMR. Until that yeah, came into place, yeah, yeah there, until that came in place, there really wasn't uh, any incentive for people to do anything like that and have some standards. And then now that it's here, again, it, it's it was just too disparate. I think there's just too many. Uh, there's not enough incentives for people to be on a universal platform either, uh, because again, even you know health networks that acquire more subsidiaries, you know, uh, more child organizations to join their health network seem to have issue. I mean, they can't switch each other off of the whatever EMR software they're on, right? It, it, so you end up having these health networks that can tell you, yeah, we operate 14 different operating softwares. It's like really. So I, again, I, I don't, that's a great question, but I think it's a legacy problem. Okay. Yeah. It's something that I think we, we, we got to somehow figure out before really can move on, you know, maybe just to close out, you, you, you mentioned it earlier on when we're talking about like EMR data, 
obviously all the all the talk these days is around generative AI. You know, it sounds like you think that it could help, you know, make EMR data more usable. You know, what 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 is sort of your thoughts on the utility and and reliability of uh, generative generative AI in analyzing healthcare data? I still think this is <laughs> this is one of these managed expectations things. I think uh, what people think it's going to do versus what it's going to do in the short term are, are wildly different. Um, you know, I meet with people constantly that have, have big plans for generative AI to do, uh, you know, complete patient journey analysis or really deep complex analysis, right. Um, or to just create generative algorithms, um, to kind of solve problems of data. But I still come back to, it. I think it's a really good tool and first step, especially in its pioneering days here for cleanliness, normalization, and and really kind of filling gaps, imputing fields, fixing what's broken and and filling in the gaps. And from there, I think we'll open the door to more complicated analysis to, to come. But I, I will say that I, I we'll see how this plays out, right? But I think if that that's the one thing that just kind of always resonates with me is I, I, I read the same articles that everybody else does. And there's, there's a big emphasis on, on it solving huge problems that I, I keep thinking I think it could solve small problems first really effectively, but I don't know. It doesn't seem much of a push on that. Yeah. And maybe as an example, right. You know, uh, Teladoc health recently announced, you know, that it's working with Microsoft uh, to use sort of the open AI and, and the nuanced DAX platform uh, to to do the, to automate the clinical documentation part of a telehealth visit. Is that the sort of the small problem, kind of fill in the gap where you see this yeah. kind of technology fitting in in the early days? Yeah, I do. And I, yeah, and I, I, that's, that's what I'm getting at. That's, so hats off to them. That's a, that's a good way to use that that capability um to to try to solve smaller problems first you know it's a, a an example i used because we were talking about it the other day but um we just passed uh through the anniversary for the normandy d-day invasion um right in early june and uh i just took a second and i was i, I something had popped up right and i read something about the day and and I think I saw what I saw. What touched me was I saw these ninety-something-year-old um, veterans that are still alive that were there that day, and and they had uh, I want to say like they they collected seventy of these um, gentlemen to be in Normandy, and uh, so it just caught me, and I was like, huh? And I looked up Baird, I looked up Bard, I looked up Microsoft, I looked up we'll put ChatGPT, and so I pulled up in three different windows. And I was I was frantically asking it, trying to understand um, how many people stormed the beach, how many died that day, how many are still alive today. Just you know, again, coming back to actuarial numbers, kind of an interesting thing. And I thought, we'll see what it says, right? And these are, I I don't want to say this is like a a real scripted answer that somebody definitely has. You know, it's like a definitive answer, but it kind of is, right? And I certainly got three different answers. And I won't say which one was right, but I did get three different answers on the questions I was asking about something that was very 
finite, right? And so long-winded example, the reason I bring that up is when I start to ask these things to answer complicated questions, unknown answers, looking at like healthcare data, how much, you know, how much precision is there? Because I asked it some pretty known answers and got many different answers, right? Yeah. And certainly once you're dealing with healthcare where the impact of that, if you don't have the right answer, you know, is obviously very profound versus, you know, a simple question on just trivia, right? So, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that's a great place to end it. And so, Paul, you know, uh, really appreciate uh, you uh, spending the time to give us this great overview and uh, look forward to, to chatting with you again in the future. And I uh, want to thank everyone uh, for joining and listening uh, to the podcast today and look forward to having you join us uh, on future pods. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of TD Cowan Insights.